three times as many people watch Jersey Shore premieres as watch Mad Men. <laughs> Mad Men is the story of a bunch of people who work in advertising starting in the late 1950s and into and through now 1964, 1965. It's about the ways that they are insulated and ignorant and also changed by that changing culture of 1960s America. I got why my dad changed his name. That world was swimming in all kinds of unearned privilege. People of color were barely seen by the people in the show, rendered invisible, deeply anti-Semitic. Incredibly sexist. Gay people, lesbian people had to hide who they were or lose potentially everything. Mad Men is a great show, but not because it is about great people. It is about a past that is deeply flawed. About a past that I personally have no desire to go back to. Mad Men is a necessary corrective to where our country is right now. There is a movement, I don't know how many millions, but at the very least they're making themselves very vocal. A movement to want to go back and away from what America is today. Perhaps it is the first African American president. Yet very few people actually cop to that. <laughs> But change is very, very scary for some people, and they react very, very poorly. Perhaps it is also this, the larger dynamic, that we are in a time of economic secure insecurity in this country. And if you look back at any other moment in the life of America since it has been a republic, since it has been its own independent nation, every time there is economic insecurity, we are looking, hopefully not all of us, but there is a movement and our movements afoot to blame that someone else, those others. It's always a movement that is boiled down to this. We imagine, or some people imagine, a past that really was perfect, <laughs> in which parents respected their kids and kids never hurt their parents and people followed the letter of the law and everything was just all right. We imagine that past to escape an imperfect present. But this kind of spirit, whatever its politics, is deeply hostile to our way of spirituality. Emerson, I think, summed this up very directly. He said, compared to what lies within us, what lies behind us or even in front of us, are meager matters. It is this moment, this time, with all of its imperfections, with all of its challenges, that is our moment. The movie for today, The Kids Are All Right, is all about recognizing the beauty, the joy, the challenge, the necessity of this moment, and not wanting to escape to some other time that anyone might imagine. And it is a work of imagination to be somehow perfect, more perfect than our time, which is so deeply flawed, some would tell us. The Kids Are All Right... It's about a lesbian married couple living in Southern California. Annette Benning and Julianne Moore play Nick and Jules Nick, who is a completely, deeply dedicated doctor and an amazing control freak and also is working on a hell of a drinking problem. 
and Julianne Moore's Jules, a free spirit who never quite has decided yet what she wants to do when she grows up and sort of flits from one thing to another to another. What I love about this movie is they don't idealize their characters. They're not absolute archetypal heroines. They are people trying to build and maintain life and love together. They are like us. They're flawed, trying to become whole. The title of the movie comes from the fact that when one of their children, they, be, they have two kids, two kids together, Joni, and we never quite get the story behind this, but a 15-year-old son named simply Laser. Joni has turned 18, and at Laser's insistence, knowing that both of them, born one each by their moms, try to find the anonymous sperm donor, who gave them biological life. She's turned 18. She has the right to know this. And they find their biological father, Paul, played by Mark Ruffalo. And this really isn't his story. It's actually really nice to see a movie in which, I have to say this as a guy, in which the women really are the primary characters and it's the guys who sort of serve minor functions. It is a wonderful movie on its own merits. It does not idealize the main characters. I loved it. It was funny. It was very moving. But even more, I love what this movie represents at this time and this place at this moment in the life of America. See, the movie begins with these anxious kids looking, thinking, believing somehow that if they find out the mystery of their origins, find their biological father, that somehow their anxiety will be dispelled. That by looking back somehow, they will be able to look forward. The title, The Kids Are All Right, intentionally talking about, was it, God, no, 45 years ago, almost 50 years ago when that song by The Who came out. What that movie is really all about is that the kids, our kids, are all right. It's not, as we sometimes hear in the voice of all kinds of politicians and preachers and moral scolds, the kids these days. Do with me. Okay, yeah, good. Clucking is great for moral condemnation. Kids these days. They just don't get it. This movie has the opposite perspective. Everything is not falling apart. The kids, with their ability to adapt, to change and to grow, are all right. This movie is both progressive and traditional in the best sense of both words. It says that the traditions that have kept many of us aloft over the years, the ties that bind are elastic enough to encompass new realities. They are not fragile things, words like love and family and compassion. These are big, growing, changing words which have the capacity to grow with us and our enlarging consciousness. They are not things frozen in time from another era that unless we get back to that era, we will somehow be lost. This movie says no. We have the ability and the power to be able to adapt. It is progressive traditionalism, if you will, marrying those two things together. Lesson of the movie is that we cannot go back. We should not want to go back. Instead, we must adapt. We have the power, all of us, to change and grow. 
It reminds me more than anything else of the spirit of the writing of the man who authored our mission, what inspired us as we were beginning here at Wellsprings. Charged full with the charge of the soul comes right out of leaves of grass. America's, from my perspective, best, deepest, most wonderful, most enlarging poetry, Walt Whitman's collection. When you read Leaves of Grass, you see that the American spirit at its best is the true spirit, capital S, of adaptability and growth and facing challenge. I love that he wrote these words just among so many of the thousands. He said that every atom, every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Every atom. He said, I hear America singing. Its varied carols are what I listen to. And then perhaps because even in his time as an ours, who said, no, it's too big. We can't possibly get along. We can't possibly understand each other. He said, embrace the paradoxes. He said, I am large. I contain multitudes. We all do. Remember a day some years ago, just before Christmas, I think it was 2003, at that point, I was living in Florida, and I wanted a little bit of, you can tell I'm a New York Jew originally, because I love New York at Christmas time. New York at Christmas time is one of my favorite things in the world. I think every Jewish person ever born in New York City loves Christmas time in New York City. I spent about 45 minutes that day just sitting on the steps of St. Pat's, St. Patrick Cathedral, right along Fifth Avenue. And I saw Dominican nuns from Africa go in and group. And I saw a group of Cistercian, actually probably not Cistercian, they're probably Franciscan brothers walk up and in. And then I saw tourists from all across America of all different nationalities and races and religions as well too. gather in that place where so many gather, even though it is from one tradition. I saw an Irish American cop and an Italian American cop, kind of the Yiddish word is kibitzing with an Arab American hot dog vendor telling him don't stray too far out into traffic. Not really hassling him, just kind of saying, you know, forget about it. You know, come on, deal with me here. And see the back and forth between them. Just witnessing all this life on this one little block. And then I walked down Fifth Avenue. Fifth Avenue, which, like so many avenues in New York, contains the extremes of humanity. The very rich and the very poor. And thinking to myself at the time, as a prayer, as Whitman said, every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. And then, in a little bit of a blast from the past, something I didn't expect to see, I think it was 46th Street between 5th and Madison as I was walking down and away from that central shopping district and business district, I saw the garlicky and also honestly gaseous gift of my people to the world, a pickle shop. <laughs> I thought a little touch of the Lower East Side here in Midtown, somehow still surviving, still existing. This is a day that I felt Whitman's spirit. That America is a vibrant place for all of its flaws. It is a place of adaptation and growth. Reviewing a great new biography about Whitman's life and about his works and his words. Jerry McCarter writes in Newsweek magazine just last month. He said, leaves of grass is our declaration of acceptance. The charter for an America 
that knows that the only way this experiment will work is if our primary action isn't to keep drawing boundaries around people. The only way our declaration of acceptance will work is if we keep trying to erase those boundaries. Now more than ever, we need not Walt Whitman. He was a man of his time and flawed as many other people were. But Whitman's spirit, his gifts, his words, his inspiration. We need that right now. Hearing the multitude, seeing the likenesses besides the differences, practicing progressive traditionalism, keeping on with our American experiments. I think we need it especially right now because there are so many voices who oppose very vocally and without any sense of shame from what I can sense. Whitman's kind of vision for what America can be. Some of you might know that there has been a controversy, an ongoing controversy these last few weeks, last couple of months, actually, about the idea of what's called the quote unquote ground zero mosque. By the way, do you know there is no such thing? The mosque that is being proposed, the Islamic Center for Prayer and Community Center, it is two blocks away from Ground Zero on private property. (laughs) But we believe there is a Ground Zero mosque, as if Al-Qaeda had planted it right there, right at the center of Ground Zero, right in the footsteps of where that tragedy occurred. And I don't mean to demean the fact that there are some people, especially some people who lost loved ones that day, who are angry or the very least fearful or expressing their pain through a kind of fear. And I don't want to diminish that, but I also want to say that if you're in the most pain over something, that somehow you win the day. People who are in pain sometimes can have great breakthroughs and great insights, or they can behave incredibly badly or incredibly fearfully. I don't want to say that somehow because some families of the survivors of those who were killed that day, that somehow they win the day because there are a bunch of other families who say the perfect thing, the ideal American thing in the spirit of Whitman is not to oppose this mosque. And then there are the voices who don't come out of pain, but come out of nothing more than I can describe as bigotry or hatred. I read this gobsmacking quote two Saturdays ago from none other than Newt Gingrich. Listen to how he phrases this. There's so much wrong in here that I hear. The average American, he says, just thinks that this is a political statement. It's not about religion. And it clearly is an aggressive act that is offensive. How the hell does he know any of that? And actually, if you look at the group that is trying to put this mosque on this privately owned piece of property, not at ground zero but two blocks away, explicitly their reasons is that they present themselves and are, I believe them. I have no other reason so far not to believe them, that they are a moderate and modern form of Islam, just as there are moderate and modern forms of Christianity and Judaism, and there are not, who say that it is part of their work Part of their work in the world to have people understand that Al-Qaeda and the extremists and the jihadists are not all of Islam. Perhaps the most difficult thing to accept is that those who oppose the quote unquote but not really ground zero mosque is that they end up sounding exactly. I'm not saying their actions are like, but they end up sounding exactly like those who they oppose. They say this is our sacred soil. 
And there shouldn't be anyone on this sacred soil of downtown Manhattan of Ground Zero who opposes our vision. This is exactly what extremists of all kinds claim, that this is their property and that a national identity and a religious identity are fused. Welcome to the reasoning of the world of Al-Qaeda. This is not Whitman's American spirit. I hate naming names here, but I got to do it. In the world of Sarah Palin, words don't seem to have any meanings anyway. And so when she put on her Facebook page or tweeted or whatever the hell she was that she did, when she asked all moderate Muslims to repudiate, refuse and repudiate, I guess, together. That's like I said, when words don't have any meaning, you just jam together into a great big mashup. All moderate Muslims should repudiate this mosque. It's moderate Muslims who are trying to build this mosque. If you go back to label of that reasoning, you see something very ugly there. Collective guilt. The terrorists on 9-11, the real terrorists that there are in the world, are Muslim. Therefore, all Muslims are suspect. And if we're just about the ground zero mosque, as the opponents would have you believe, then maybe we could take a step back. But it's not. Perhaps some of you know this, that in the last few weeks, there have been open opposition and protests to simple mosques, simple communities of faith for Muslims in Staten Island and Tennessee and California and Wisconsin. Their only crime, seemingly, is wanting to be Muslims who worship together. That's what the opposition to the mosque in downtown Manhattan is all about. California political reactionary group started to protest the fact that there was something and has been going on for a decade now called Muslim Day at a Six Flags amusement park. Have you ever been to Citizens Bank Park? There's Jewish Day and Italian American Day and African American Heritage Nights. And all kinds of different nights celebrating different groups. There's nothing different than this at that Six Flags Park. They said that they planted it on the day 9-12, right after 9-11, to desecrate the memory of that day. And actually, you know what? The Muslim group sponsoring it moved it from 9-11 because 9-11 is the day after Ramadan, the most holy Time in the Muslim calendar ends this year, and especially because they didn't want to have the appearance of causing offense, they didn't put it on 9-11, they put it on 9-12. And a final, final denial of the fact that there is anything nefarious, nefarious going on this day. Muslim Day at this particular Saint Fla- at this particular Six Flags was started in 2000. Not after 9-11. And it was started by a man who was himself murdered in those towers on September 11th, 2001. There is something very ugly showing itself for some people in our anxious time and in our anxious day. Fearful people and cynical politics hostile to the very kind of American spirit that Whitman had. But I want to give the last word here in this, talking about this mosque in downtown Manhattan, to Mayor Bloomberg, 
in Whitman's city, carrying Whitman's message about real American strength and the real American dream. He said there is no more appropriate place for this mosque to be. He said the government should never, ever be in the business of telling people how they should pray or where they can pray. We want to make sure that everybody from around the world has the opportunity to know that they can feel comfortable coming here, living here and praying the way they want. And the final word from Mayor Bloomberg, democracy is stronger than this fear. We won't go back. We must adapt. And in that, there was very, very good news this past week. The overruling of Proposition 8 in California, which removed from gay and lesbian people the right to marry. This is one of the great civil rights struggles in our time. And it took a quantum leap forward this week, enlarging the circle of hope, enlarging the circle of belonging. So much looking forward right now. We know probably in two years we'll go before the Supreme Court and Justice Kennedy. He is the defining, the deciding vote on that court. So much hangs on his shoulders for real legal American equality for millions of people. It's in Justice Kennedy's hands probably whether to author another Plessy v. Ferguson which said separate but equal for our African-American citizens. It was separate, it wasn't equal, and continued American apartheid for 50 years. Or whether Justice Kennedy will be the deciding vote that finally grants full legal equality in marriage rights to millions of Americans. I hope he might be guided by the law, but also by the spirit of Whitman. Every atom belonging to me belongs to you. There's a moment in the movie where Julianne Moore, after some really stupid things that she has done, threatens her marriage and threatens her family and knows she needs forgiveness and knows that she has done something that imperils who and what she loves the most. She stands and she gives this beautiful brief soliloquy about the challenge of marriage and the challenge of remaining committed and the challenge of being with people over time and loving them. And I got to tell you, as someone who has screwed up a marriage before, and someone who was trying to do it right this time, that every word she spoke, spoke directly to my heart. It is about enlarging the circle of belonging. It is about enlarging that circle so all who wish to come in are welcomed in. It is engagement that changes us and brings about our ability to adapt and to grow. There have always been those in America who would wish to go back to another time. This past week, preparing for this message, I listened very intentionally to someone who just makes me go tense. You ever hear Father Coughlin from the 1930s? He was the voice of reaction and repression and hatred in his anxious day and in his anxious time. Except in that time, it was another despised minority. It wasn't the Muslims. It was the Jews who were causing all the problems. And if only America could get rid of them, then everything would be okay. And America could get back to a simpler time, a better time, a more perfect time. A time that didn't exist back then and doesn't exist now. 
the ludicrous conspiracy theories, the appeal to quote unquote real Americans. Would someone please tell me what a real American is? I guess if there is a category of so-called real Americans, and I don't agree with the category that there are real Americans and fake Americans, well, I guess maybe I'm not one. There are many this day, Glenn Beck and his like, who stand in that long and sad history of people who refuse to face the challenges of the moment and imagine that was better some other place in some other time and want to blame others to get back to that place that never existed. We cannot go back. We must adapt. And I would say we won't go back. We will adapt. What can we do as people who exist in the lineage of Walt Whitman? I would encourage you, if you have not read it, to spend some time. There's a wonderful book called So Help Me God. It is by the great, late scholar and minister for his church, who I've talked about often from this pulpit, who brought me into ministry and was my friend, and I miss regularly that he is no longer in this world with us. So Help Me God, which is about a true scholarly understanding of the relationship between God and government and between religion and state and law and spirituality in the foundings of the Republican for the first 50 years. And you recognize when you read this great scholarly book, there was no golden age. People were always arguing over this stuff that we're arguing over now. Go and read that and equip yourself with a true understanding. Not an idealized one. Read the words of George Washington writing in one of the first great scriptures, secular scriptures. Read his words writing to a synagogue in Rhode Island, wondering whether they would be afforded equal status under the law or whether as Jews they would be second class citizens. Read his words, Washington, whose ideals far outstrip his life because he was amazingly imperfect and had all the problems of his day contained in his life. But he said, it is now no more mere toleration that is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another class of people enjoyed their inherent national gifts and their rights. It is not because the majority decides because people like me are the majority that somehow others should have rights. As if rights are a case of me just being magnanimous on that day. And, well, I feel a little bad today, so I'm going to take away your rights. George Washington was saying the exact opposite. And it is this spirit, under this spirit, that that mosque in downtown Manhattan should go forward. And it is in this spirit that all our gay and lesbian fellow citizens should be able to marry the person of their choice. The other thing I think all of us can do is to speak up and to befriend. I would like you to imagine for just one moment that however many years it is in the future, we here at Wellsprings, we continue to grow, and we reach that place and we reach that time where we say it is time for us to purchase some land and to build our building. And we show up at that zoning hearing and we see an angry mob opposing our right to be. Put yourself in that place and try to put yourself in those people's shoes. Imagine how vulnerable we would feel. It is a difficult time for people who are termed different to be in America right now. And I fear it's going to get worse. 
if you have Muslim co-workers, friends, people maybe you don't know all that well, reach out to them. Let them know that the bigotry and the hatred in our country right now is not something you accept and not something you stand for. Let them know that they have allies who are not in their tradition alone. This is Whitman's spirit. To see the likeness behind the difference. To recognize where Whitman was also, I think, our best theologian in America as well, too. Better than any traditional theology I ever read in divinity school or seminary. He said, I find love letters from God dropped in the street. Those love letters of wisdom, that naturally abundance resource of awakening and growth, it is here. It is not from some other time and some other place. The pen of wisdom has not run dry. We can still write with it and still read it if we choose to. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of this time and our time and this place and our place. May we have the courage to inhabit our lives as they are. May we have the courage to see those, see those who through no fault of their own are blamed by others for the challenges of our day and of our age and to say publicly and with courage that this is not right. May we truly have the courage of our convictions that Abundance is right here and right now, and we are in the midst of it. Let us live abundant lives of justice and kindness and compassion. Through this, may our lives be blessed, and more importantly, may we bless the lives of others. Amen.